Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FPNA leaders and planning experts. Hi, welcome to Being Planful. My name's Rowan Tonkin, and I'm the host here today. And I'm really pleased to be joined by Jeff Ignacio, who looks after revenue operations at Upkeep. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Rowan. Appreciate for having me. Uh, I know we started off just chatting on LinkedIn, and it's yeah. been really great to finally get a uh, chance to talk with you. Yeah, this is going to be a fun conversation. So uh, for all of those uh, FP&A leaders out there that are wondering, why is Jeff in revenue operations on the FP&A, uh, you know, being planful show? That's because Jeff used to be an FP&A, so I wanted to tell his story. So, Jeff, do you want to actually do that for me instead of me kind of telling everyone who you are? I, I always like to, to have you tell it in your own words. So tell us about your journey from FP&A to revenue operations. Sure. Um, why don't we start off that? I didn't start off in FP&A in my career. I uh, was actually a technology consultant for Accenture and then moved into technology sales uh, for a couple of years before going to business school. Now in business school, it's a generalist opportunity to explore a whole host of different types of careers and ultimately settled on studying strategy and finance and wanted to find the intersection of both of those disciplines. And so my first role out of business school from the University of Michigan was to work at a company called Intel. Intel was a fantastic place because obviously they've been around for decades and obviously a well and very highly tuned and mature FP&A function. Uh, there I worked on budget and planning, roll-ups, uh, consolidating the, the 10K and the 10Qs, um, everything from um, taking a look at you know, cost benefit analysis for, um, for, fab, for fabs and all that wonderful stuff. I moved away from the hardware space and moved to Google where I supported their enterprise division. Um, they've now renamed it over and over multiple times, but back then it was multiple products across several business units. And there was a sales channel that was horizontal to all of these different business lines. That horizontal channel needed a whole host of FP&A support, and that's where I fit in. So focused primarily on territories, incentives, quotas, really looking at results, um, bookings forecasts, and also getting a chance to take a look at the economics of the SaaS business. Now, Google is famous for its ads business, but it also has a whole host of other businesses, uh, much like Google Cloud, which was a nascent product at the time, Google Apps, folks who use Gmail for their enterprise, um, Google Maps, for enterprise is another really key and critical product that we supported. And so that's how I was, uh, you know, that was my FP&A journey. From there, I partnered with sales operations at Google. And, you know, we talked about this before our chat, but in some ways sales ops is an extension of FP&A and sometimes FP&A can be an extension of sales ops. There's such significant overlap over our disciplines that ultimately I was lured and really interested to see what sales ops is all about. Wanted to spend all the all the time with the fun sales guys at all the good parties back when uh, back when we could do that. Um, when I think about Intel and Google, I think of huge FP&A teams. How how large was the FP&A teams at, at those uh, at those organizations? <laughs> I you know I don't even remember to be honest. I can tell you on my team we had five analysts for uh, sorry four analysts, two manage uh, one manager. Sorry, two managers and a director. So that's a, it's about seven folks covering a run rate business of about 1.7, 1.8 billion. Um, 
uh, Google obviously was many multitudes above that, multiples above that um, across its entire business line. Um, I was in sales FP&A there. They had product line FP&A, really looking at feature benefit analysis uh, on their go-to-market strategy. We had folks who were in treasury. Uh, we considered FP&A as well and a whole host of other functions. At Intel, same thing, um, easily dozens, um, probably numbering up to the triple digits. And then you, you've gone on to much smaller organizations. So you've gone where you've had, you know, got five analysts, a couple of managers and a director just in FP&A jump ship to sales operations and, you know, in smaller, smaller companies, what's that translation transition been like for you? So a great question. So the original thesis around moving into sales ops was that I wanted to learn as much as I could. Um, and so the only way to do that was to move away from a specialist role into a generalist role. Um, when you go to, you know, from a large enterprise company, everyone will know this, your role is highly specialized. Um, there are enough, there's enough bandwidth and headcount capacity to have folks focus on, uh, on really interesting things and, and gain deep expertise. At startups or, you know, mid-level companies, uh, they can't, they don't have that luxury. And so one of the easiest and fastest ways to learn is to fail fast. And you can do that more reasonably at a startup. And so the transition is hard, uh, you know, for sure. If, you know, if you're, if you're accustomed to you know, 40 hour work week, 50 hour work week. And then you, you go to a place where 40 to 50 hours just won't cut it just because the, the growth, the, you know, the monster of growth demands, you know, just, you have to outwork everyone. Uh, so that transition is a little bit different. So obviously moving from specialist to generalist and from large to small, uh, a whole host of challenges there. And when you think about that, not only that large to small transition, but also, um, you know, partly the, the sales ops, and now you're working um, with another FP&A team and, and, and in some smaller organizations, that may be just a team of one, uh, finance and accounting all rolled into one. Um, <clears throat> how have you seen your kind of experience in FP&A help you now in the sales ops, revenue ops world? I think there's one thing that, comes to mind is great partnership with your with your finance partner or partners and you're absolutely right in a lot of small companies you have a team of one and sales ops is very much the same way you may have these ratios that a lot of folks drive where you have 25 frontline sellers you get one sales ops person uh, that, that's not always true you can see some companies completely redline against that that ratio and you may have one person supporting a team of 40 um, obviously the level of quality of work is going to decline and you're going to have to make some some trade-offs. Uh, now, one thing that I think is a great working relationship is that when you're in sales ops from an FP&A background, you lack a couple of things. You lack potentially the business acumen from a sales perspective. You lose the sight of you know what does it take to run a successful sale from a qualitative component. Um, you, you know, generating interest to developing engagement to great discovery questions, all the way through proving value. Now, you don't learn that in finance. What you learn in finance is how many heads do I have? How long does it take to ramp? How much quota do they have? What's the percentage that they're likely to attain? How can I extrapolate that out over a future time period? And then I can build forward or run it backwards in terms of here's our target and here's what we can do in terms of capacity plan. And then from that, you can build a hiring plan. And that's knowing the business from a spreadsheet. And oftentimes I think businesses fail to understand that you need a bottoms up and a tops down understanding and somewhere in between is a learning process between both the planners and the folks who are actually executing the business. 
Yeah, one of the things that I've seen is another key difference is the the FP&A teams generally don't have a sense of the market opportunity, right? Like if you think about capacity models and and the kind of quota models, a lot of that doesn't go far enough back in terms of well, what is the total addressable, total serviceable market, and so therefore the hiring plans could be built on off an, a, you know, an, a number, right? Like, oh, we're going to create, achieve 40, 50% growth. And it's like, well, let's just back in the hiring plan where you could have actually hired well ahead of that to get to 60, 70% growth in some instances. And that's an interesting thing because when you're in a business that's steady state growing, you know, 15 to 30 points a year, uh, that, that can make a lot of sense. Your historicals can actually lead you to having a very tight variance on your forecast and, and really high confidence on your plan. When you're, when you're a startup, uh, you know, early on, you're trying to triple, 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 double, double to get to, you know, hopefully potential IPO. That's, you know, you throw all those assumptions out the window because, you know, future is not necessarily a predictor um, from, from the past data. You actually have to really understand, okay, well, we're going up market, meaning that our TAM is shrinking, but the dollar size is larger. Um, you know, the, the actual different type of folks we're selling into and the type of sales managers and sales reps we're gonna need, type of marketing campaigns we'll need. Um, all, all those assumptions kind of change. You just can't simply carry what you did in the past and apply it forward. Yeah, and that maturation for, for many FP&A leaders is something that they may have not experienced in the past either. I mean, like the one thing about hyper growth is it doesn't happen all the time, right? You have to be pretty lucky to, to get that lightning strike you know, once or twice in your career. And, and if you don't get it, then you've seen some of the failures. Um, any kind of perspective on how you would address kind of what you may have learned in, in some of those, I'm not saying you failed, I'm just, you know, what you learned at some of those bigger orgs like Google and Intel that were more mature and how do you apply some of that to these smaller orgs? Well, when I was at a larger company, I was at an analyst level. And so at an analyst level, you're, you're not necessarily leading and, uh, you know, earning a strategic a seat at the table, giving strategic advice and shaping the business. As an analyst, you're focused on execution. And as, as an executor, you're really learning the craft of what F, the FP&A analyst needs to be. Um, at my level, I was really looking to, you know, step up into a manage, manager role, uh, which layers on not just business acumen and technical acumen, but really looking at, you know, leadership. How do you grow a team? Um, that's one leap that, that that's difficult to make. Um, when you're at a smaller company, um, like I was when I left into sales ops, um, I, I left a couple, you, you spin on three axes, right? And I spun on two of them. Um, I, I say you should normally try to spin on one if you can. You can spin up across industry, you can change industry, you can change function, or you can change level. In my case, I changed level and I changed, changed function. So rather than embracing what I knew that were my strengths, which is territories, quotas, um, I had to really develop a whole new set of skills. So there's a level of adaptability and putting a brave face around doing something new that you really don't know what you're doing per se. Like for example, when you think about sales operations or revenue operations, you typically think about CRM systems and you're thinking about process. Uh, so when it comes to those systems and processes, um, I didn't know Salesforce, uh, which you know I would think is a red flag for a RevOps role. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then process. Okay, well, what do you know about selling? What do you know about marketing? Well, quite frankly, I didn't know anything about marketing. And, and it, I knew only what I knew when I was a sales rep many years before I was in the FP&A. So to be frank, not a whole lot. But I did get a role, talked a good game, went into a role that was way above my head. And honestly, I went from 
uh, I went to working maybe 80, 90 hours a week, which uh, was not sustainable for a lot of folks, um, but it did, you know, I was probably three times as inefficient as a normal sales ops hire that was a lateral hire, but I knew that I had the, hopefully the, the horsepower and uh, the will to learn a whole new profession. And, and after that, about a year, I felt really comfortable in the sales ops role. Wow. Yeah. I mean, one thing I want to clear up for our audience is you use the uh, the term sales ops and revenue ops interchangeably. Do you want to talk just quickly for our audience about what the, the difference is? Because revenue ops is a new emerging function. I know I, I look after that here at Planful, which is not normal for a marketing leader to do. Uh, it's pretty uncommon. Most of the time it's led by a CRO or sales ops. Do you want to, do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, absolutely. It's a hot topic that's buzzing in uh, in the ops space. Even ops itself is a, a is a new buzzy term for many industries. Think about it, um, high tech, healthcare, fintech. They've embraced sales ops over the last five to ten years. Um, you can tell that's evident uh, that they're shifting directions. But a lot of those same companies are now moving to having a chief revenue officer, and that's a new job title as well over the last ten years. And uh, if you think about sales planning, sales analysts, those were titles that were here before sales operations. So the need for what quote unquote operations supporting sales or marketing or post-sale um, slash customer success, it's always been there. It's just potentially, you know, the, the craft, the tools, the processes and sophistication around it has now led to decentralized jobs around it. So sales operations, in my view, is the specific strategic and tactical support that you receive focusing on sales. And sales is a very specific um, uh, range in the spectrum of a customer life cycle. So that's, you know, as soon as it leaves the marketing's hands and it gets to a sales rep or a sales development rep, someone that is qualifying the role beyond uh, simple ca information capture, um, that is, you're, you're in a full boat sales cycle right there. And to the point when you ink the contract and you get them ready to hand them off to someone that's going to implement or bring them on board. Uh, to me, that's the spectrum of what sales operations is. Revenue operations is much than that. It's all the way to the front where you focus on, they're unaware of they have a pain or something to solve to uh, becoming aware there's a need. And by the way, there's a solution out there called my company that can then uh, that they're now interested. So you're moving from this awareness to interest. The old, the old ADA, AIDA funnel from back in the day still rings very true today, uh, old hat, all the way to sale, which we just talked about, to post-sale. Post-sale is really looking at customer engagement. How do we unlock the value that the customer expected when they first signed up for your product? And how do we get them to refer their friends, their family, their peers in the industry, and as well as spend more, lock them into new suite, uh, new suite of products, whether it's over the long term. Uh, revenue operations is a much wider mandate. Um, and with that, you lose a little bit of the, the deep expertise around each line function, like sales ops or marketing ops or CX ops. And really looking for alignment, um, that alignment around all of the different leaders across all these three different spectrums now working together Focus on one person, and that's the customer. So um, avoiding the pitfall of maximizing or optimizing for marketing or sales or CS, you're really thinking about the customer holistically, moving them from that unawareness all the way to we love you and we're going to continue buying from you, and I'm going to tell all my friends and family about you. Yeah, and those those interlocks through all of those key processes, obviously there's, there's deep functional expertise and you know, the, the emergence of revenue ops that I've seen has, has been traditionally kind of pull, pulled through by sales, really just trying to say, we need to learn more about marketing and marketing kind of partnering together. And then they're like, 
what do we call this operations team that we've created? And then they're like, well, customer success is so crucial to, uh, you know, or post-sale is so crucial to uh, not only marketing success in social proof, but also sales success in kind of referenceability and credibility. And so they've all kind of just typically created a coalition of the willing type model, right? Where, you know, those, those operations team get together and then in some organizations, they've gone so far as to structure that all together, which is the term revenue ops um, that we're seeing more and more. Now, from my perspective, those interlocks are huge with an FP&A team. I mean, you think about all the metrics now that a revenue operations team has at their disposal. They're like the keys to the kingdom for an FP&A team when you're trying to, to, to build all of the models that you're looking for. So in, in your experience, what have you seen as kind of many of those interlocks uh, between FP&A and revenue operations? There's a couple of key areas, right? You've talked about measuring the funnel and using the funnel to reasonably predict what the outcome of the month or week or quarter, whatever the period you're looking to forecast bookings or revenue, whatever the top line metric you're looking for. And then from that, all the different top of funnel uh, resource allocation needs that you're going to have to make. So how many heads, what type of heads, when should we bring them on and what experience levels, what are the, you know, what are the, what's the piece of overhead that we need? What kind of technology stack, how many managers per rep? Um, to me, the handoffs are critical um, in the funnel itself. So if we talk about resource allocation, you're talking about capacity planning, coverage, looking at capability. If you're talking about the funnel itself, you really want to understand, okay, well, what are the milestones in the customer's journey to becoming a customer themselves. Um, typically that's going to be how many leads, how many leads convert. If, you, if your sales cycle requires meetings and how many meetings does it take to get to an opportunity and every company almost establishes a different definition for what an opportunity is. And then from there, what are the specific things that or you know, events that happen in the opportunity that lead you to a sale? Now, all of these, if you believe that sales is not just an art, but also a, a science or a process that can be heavily engineered and optimized, and I believe in that fundamentally, um, then you can relay a lot of that information to a finance team. Now, one of the reasons why I think uh, great sales ops or rev ops folks um, come from, from FP&A backgrounds is because of the rigor of their an analytical prowess. Um, and to me, that is something that uh, is hard to teach someone and you just have to have a knack for it, right? Someone who says, look, when I'm going out to plant, uh, hang out with my friends for a trip to you know, some, some holiday, you're the person that probably creates a super sophisticated spreadsheet with formulas <laughs> behind it. You're that person, right? Or if you're like me, you're watching the general election. I actually had spreadsheets out trying to figure out, okay, well, what's the run rate and how many votes are left? And if I, you know, if we were below the average or above the average, which candidate would win? Um, you're that kind of geeky, uh, uh, but yet very curious person around very interesting problems. Yeah, absolutely. And then when I, you know, when I think about that from an FP&A perspective, the next step is to then flip that conversation from all of the um, all of the insights that you're pulling to then go and model out future years, future scenarios, future what if analysis, right? In order to hit growth goal A, then we would need X. In order to hit growth goal, you know, B, we would need Y. And, uh, and, and that's then becomes where finance needs to partner with the other parts of the business, right? Finance partnering with marketing to go and deliver the marketing plan. Here's your program spend. Here's how much you should be spending on these types of activities. 
And so those two functions, you know, whilst having a huge amount of interlock, um, are very different in terms of their technology um, resourcing, right? I mean, if you think about most FP&A teams, they're typically run on spreadsheets up until a certain scale. And yet, you know, I'm sure you you uh, enjoy the benefits of this. Um, us go-to-market teams, we get a lot of technology at our disposal. So how do you how do you try and empower as as a RevOps leader now? How do you try and empower your FP&A team? with all the insights that you have without overwhelming them? A couple of things. Uh, one is what date, you know, what, what, what is the business, what are the business questions you're trying to uh, answer? Uh, what are you trying to learn about the business? Um, I can point you in the right direction. For example, if you want to know exactly what's happening at the very top of the funnel, I can point you to marketing automation platforms or our CRM, uh, namely Salesforce, HubSpot, probably the big players in the space. I can then uh, provide either direct access or indirect access to you through BI tables, uh, which you can then download and export the data and manipulate to your own will. Uh, there are other pieces of data that are external to our technology stack. Um, let me find, you know, get you access and um, a path to that data as well. Um, second thing is really understanding um, the nuts and bolts of our sales motion. Um, how long, what's the deal duration uh, typically, you'll look at something called pipeline velocity or deal velocity. Um, really, all that tells you is how long does it take to close the deal? Um, what's the distribution of deals that are going to close and by what segments? Um, so that data fidelity and those data governance processes that sales ops and rev ops and marketing ops folks are, are, are keen to put in early, um, those are great pieces of insight that you can then place into any sort of FP&A model. Um, on the commissions and the quota front, um, same thing. Um, you know, I, I establish SLAs around how long does it take to process uh, payroll? How long does it take to um, open a dispute process? Um, those are the things that we want to partner and build together. So that way sales seamlessly says, oh, I have a place to go to, uh, to, um, to have all these needs um, provided, whether it's finance or ops, it's almost, it's almost invisible to who they go to uh, because you're working so well together. Um, so I think clear areas, um, access to data, to understanding the insights that you can um, um, you can then build off your analyses. So you have this data, you have these analyses, you have these insights. Then we can start focusing on driving a narrative and jointly working together on um, hopefully making better data-driven decisions. Yeah, and then really starting to share that, like you know, building that narrative together is really important because the worst thing for an organization is when uh, when one team has one point of view and another has another point of view. Uh, and potentially that may come from the fact that they're not working together from the same data sources. One's pulling from one source system, one's pulling from another source system. I've seen that happen a lot, um, you know, in my career and it becomes really problematic, um, when that happens because now you've got multiple narratives running around the organization and people are really confused. So my recommendation, if you're in FPNA, is go and just be really curious with your sales ops team, with your you know, marketing ops team. And if you're lucky to have one, a revenue operations team, because they want you to have exactly the same information. Um, they, they want to build that narrative together because finance is, is ultimately one of the ways they get more funding in, in, in essence. So, you know, working together is, is ultimately the, the, the kind of core goal there. 
I think that's absolutely right. It's, you know, we're all on one team. We might have different skill sets, um, like a basketball team. You have your center in Shaquille O'Neal, or you have a point guard who distributes the ball and looks up. But at the end of the day, you're all working towards a common goal. Yeah, absolutely. And and so what, um, what from your perspective, um, it has been one of the challenges, you know, when, when we talk to finance organizations, they're like, oh, all those marketers, all those salespeople have all that technology. And why don't we have that technology? From your perspective, Jeff, why haven't finance techno- like become more modern on a technology stack perspective like sales and marketing and to some extent now customer success and even product teams? I think at the end of the day, there's three specific reasons why people buy um, solutions, right? Whether it's software or services, it's um, strategic relevance, tactically urgent, and rapid payback. Now, uh, you can prove strategic relevance, uh, tactical urgency very quickly, uh, but uh, payback is hard. Um, with sales, you can't because the top line portion of your equation, and you can always run a present value if you'd like, a discounted cash flow if you'd like to. You can always say, look, if I get this tool, I'm going to save this many hours. This many hours is going to lead to this many dials. This many dials is then going to probabilistically lead to this many connections. Those conversations are going to lead to meetings and eventually revenue. And I know that's true. And so you can then sell a story more effectively. So I think the, 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 the ability to ask for software or services is just much easier in uh, a go-to-market-based function because you can take that half of the equation uh, much more easily. Um, I would say the work in acquiring more FP&A software, um, saving time is one portion of the analyses, but it's around, it's about seeing around corners and unlocking additional value, which is going to be hard to quantify for sure. But if you were able to do that, I think you'd have a much better argument to build a business case. In fact, a lot of FP&A tools are, are inherited tools. Uh, think about it. Um, someone will come into a shop and say, well, you know, at my last company, we had this tool and we don't have that. So I'm just going to bring that over. Right. And, uh, and that's what happens um, with sales. You, uh, you know, same thing happens a lot. But quite often, I do think operations teams can reject or accept uh, certain requests for new additions to their stack just because they can then uh, build a better business case with higher fidelity. And, and I think the, the role of, um, you know, technical marketing and sales operations leaders, right, they, they've grown up with technology per se that finance leaders haven't traditionally grown up with. And they've also got a much tighter understanding of the technology stack. It's easier as a leader on sales and marketing to reject something because you're like, well, there's like 90% overlap between these two tools. We've already picked one. We're not going to add another because that's cost. We're not going to see the ROI. Whereas with finance, you know, there's always that constant pressure that I've observed in my career to keep G&A costs down, right, relevant to the rest. And also finance trying to be the upholder of frugality for the rest of the organization saying, well, actually, we probably shouldn't invest in ourselves. We should probably let, you know, marketing or, or sales have that, that new tool that they want because to your point, that rapid time to value has more evidence or, or more proof. Um, and, and that seems to be one of the kind of key elements that, that I've observed in my career is like those two opposing forces. It's easier to prove to your point. And, uh, and it's also harder to demand as finance because they're also meant to be the, the upholders of that frugality. That's very interesting because you look at it as 
the political niceties or the capital that uh, finance leaders uh, can accrue and obviously the kind of the perception they need to uphold. Now, I, I argue something differently, right? If you can move away from cost control to total overall value, and value then brings in the fact it's not just cost controlling, it's actually value uh, value control, right? And that's a balanced equation with revenue um, and, and time. Um, and that's, a, I think, one thing you can do is figure out how to make that argument better. Like for example, if you're a startup, you're not gonna bring in a cost conscious, frugal, you know, uh, uh, CFO, right? You're gonna look for someone who's about all about investment, right? If I take an investment, what's the multiplier that I'm gonna get on, on this revenue, on, on this outlay of cash here? Um, if you're bringing in someone who says, I've been in turnarounds the whole time and I'm just gonna try to cut to the fat because we have a leverage buyout on us, then um, you put them in a, in a VC backed startup looking to triple growth, um, that's just a failure of, of, um, of mis a mismatch of, I guess, experience and skill. Yeah, that's on that's on the hiring leaders at that point. Uh, you're never going to be setting yourself up for uh, for success there. What um what advice would you have as uh, someone that's taken this journey um, from you know FPNA into sales operations through the lens of kind of doing your tour of duty in in kind of finance for sales at, at Google? What advice would you have for for younger FPNA um, analysts that are listening to this podcast? That may be thinking, do you know what? I really love the numbers and I'm really curious about the rest of the organization. What advice would you have for them, Jeff? I would say, you know, th think through your moves very carefully about what you want to do. Um, take the time to develop a network and reach out to people who are in roles that you're potentially interested in. The grass isn't always greener on the other side, but maybe it is. And so take the time to have some uh, informational interviews. Take a look at certain leaders and folks in the industry. And I guarantee you, everyone has had uh, potentially um, either a linear path or a non-linear path to where they got to. I can tell you that I'm one of those folks in the latter camp. I've enjoyed my experience so far, um, but it's not without uh, that, that transition. I did say earlier, I took a role that, where I spun on two axes and felt completely overwhelmed for the first 12 months. I mean, it, it, that, if you're ready for that, then I say take the plunge. Yeah, and then uh, the other thing I would say is, you know, to, to FP&A leaders that uh, do think the grass may, may be greener, also look at, you know, uh, other CFOs out there that may have gone on that growth trajectory and, and really leveraged their position with their mindset of feeling like a go-to-market leader, but doing that from the finance function. I think that's a, another um, career trajectory we're starting to see emerge now. You talked about you know, growth-minded CFOs, they don't just spring from nowhere. <laughs> yep, exactly. It's funny because you'll, you'll see a lot of uh, VCs or founders ask, okay, well, have you been through a B round or C round? Um, tell me about your, your fundraising experience. Tell me about, have you led a company like ours to IPOs? Like, okay, well, if I've never done it before, how can I eventually get into it? If, if everyone that's searching for this type of, this, uh, this archetype, of a, of a CFO, um, then I'm essentially left out in the cold. Um, so, so there are, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a one, I think it's about the demand and the expectations of how folks recruit for these roles. Uh, potentially 10 years from now, maybe, the, maybe it all shifts. It said, look, uh, let's bring uh, young promising talent uh, rather than looking for folks who've done this before, just because maybe it's out of fashion. Yeah, I think there's an emergence of um, of uh, really technology-minded, um, you know, finance professionals out there 
that are really thinking through how can finance be the go-to-market strategic advisor? And they're not, um, you know, I meet them all the time. They're not taking a kind of, you know, take no prisoners mindset and trying to just champion the office of finance as that. And that, you know, from some operations leader may be perceived as a clamoring for a land grab or something like that. But I actually think it's great for organizations because now you've got not only finance advocating for that growth, but also operations trying to fuel that growth. And, and if you can harness that, then you'll be really successful within an organization. That's an interesting concept. You think about competition uh, in the classical sense in the market, that there's more competition, the consumer wins because they get lower prices and potentially better products. Um, same thing could be said internally. You potentially get this uh, better product in terms of service quality, in terms of strategic and tactical support. Now, the tricky thing is internally, you're going to have to balance, uh, you know, obviously, personalities, um, emotions. And so those types of things, as long as everyone is on the same page in terms of where they want to get to, but how they get there, there can be some constructive conflict, if you will. Um, I think that can be a healthy dynamic based on the culture of the company. Yeah, absolutely. And Jeff, it's, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, there's two things that I generally always ask my guests. And the, the first one is... Um, who else should I be having on the show? I think you could talk to one of my peers who's also in RevOps. Uh, she came from kind of a finance background as well. Uh, Rosalind Sanselena over at Flarity. Great. Well, I'll be sure to connect with Rosalind. And then uh, secondly, uh, what does being planful mean to you? I think it's really thinking about where do I want to go and taking a calculated risk. And the process of taking that calculated risk is obviously really thinking through critically how you're going to get there. So being planful is about knowing that everything isn't always going to work out, but you can at least try to see around the corners ahead of time. Sounds like the perfect, uh, perfect FP&A description right there. So Jeff, um, you know, thanks again for, for being on the show. It was a really, really pleasurable uh, you know, 30 odd minutes here. Um, talking through really your journey from from FPNA into what what is a really exciting space. So, um, congrats to you and good luck with with uh, what you've got coming up next. Thanks, Rowan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for stopping by.